Hello, and welcome to PRISM. PRISM is a design-oriented podcast hosted by me, Dan Hardin. Like a glass prism that reveals the color hidden inside white light, this podcast will reveal the inside story behind innovation, especially the people that make it happen. My aim is to uncover each guest's unique point of view, their insights, their methods, or their own secret motivator, perhaps, that fuels their creative genius. Welcome, everyone, to Sustainable by Design, a materials wake-up call. My first guest is John Sara Ruth. John Sara is co-founder and design director of Healthy Material Lab at Parsons School of Design, where she serves as an associate professor and the founding director of the MFA Interior Design Program. And as a designer, John Sara has led creative and production teams to mass-produce the healthiest and most environmentally friendly furniture available in the United States. Elevating everyday human experience is her underlying pursuit. Rico is an assistant professor of the practice in the Department of Forest Biomaterials. Assistant Professor Rufino is a member of the Industrial Design Society of America and the Sustainable Furniture Council, and he's actively involved in various working groups exploring sustainability within the furnishings industry as well. His numerous degrees in design and education has helped him produce a sustainable design and testing service center that aids companies in creating and testing sustainable product development. Thank you both for joining us. Great to be here, Dan. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. I wanted to start with just a series of uh, four quick slides. Let everybody read these. These kind of go without saying, but I wanted to set the context, almost like a thesis for our discussion as kind of a, a platform for us to begin talking about these topics. I, I thought this one particular quote was funny. Plastic will be the main ingredient of all our grandchildren's recipes. I don't quite know what that's supposed to mean other than the fact that that plastic is flowing in our veins as we speak. Uh, most of us anyway, there's a new um, study that just came out that 80% of us have plastic flowing in our veins. Uh, there's plastic molecules, PET, polypropylene, polyethylene, as we speak. This kind of goes without saying, but it also goes against the premise of what a lot of us designers are all about. We are constantly striving to get our good ideas out into the field, doing their fine work by providing solutions to end users. And yet the paradox as designers is, well, it's also damaging the environment. So that's something we should try to discuss today too. Yeah, well, this kind of, this is clear as well. You know, longevity of plastics, um, it is so fleeting. Our society just consumes experiences and products so quickly that um, after the original use or maybe a dozen usages, we tend to dispose of them. And it's, that's got to stop. And this is kind of a design maxim, the, the principle of reduction, reuse, repair, rebuilt, etc., um, if it if it doesn't offer these things, they really should not go to production. So these four slides are meant to be kind of prompts for both of you, Rico and John Sara. So what are your general perspectives on the topic before we dive more into the problems that the world is facing with, with materials especially? I know, it's, it's a biggie. <laughs> I mean, I it's a it, paradox, really, right? I mean, it's... Like, I know that a lot of my students have felt this kind of existential crisis. Like they come to design school wanting to create something new then learn about all of these big issues and then think like, why am I creating anything new at all? What am I doing in this, in this discipline, in this 
field of design. Like, I, I mean, I know that as a designer, I felt that I, I came across that kind of, you know, after a bunch of years in practice, I thought, holy cow, what are we doing? You know, we're just creating new things for this planet that no one needs. And then a colleague of mine said, can't we just live with, you know, we don't, we never need to buy anything new. We could, we have enough stuff on this planet to last all of us lifetimes. So, it, you know, it is a big, big question. And when you pull in the issue of climate change and how much materials are contributing to the warming climate, as well as to the ill health of people, as well as to the waste issue, you know, it does get to be an existential crisis in a way as a designer. But, you know, we, I do believe that there, there are ways that we can be super innovative and creative around these, these subjects. So I guess that's a little personal and professional feeling. I, I agree with John Saris. Um, it is, you know, we're, we're like stewards of this planet. We need to take care of this planet. We, we only have one. And, you know, I, I want a place for my kids to, to play and, and, and live and for their children to, you know, experience the same experiences I had growing up. It's, you know, um, it's, it's very sad. And I didn't have a, a real wake up call to um, this sort of issue until my daughter presented it to me about, I gave her one, one day I gave her a drink of Starbucks drink because uh, she just had a procedure done and it um, had a straw. And she, she was going crazy about why did I give her a straw? I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? And she's like, this is, this is harming the turtles. Cause you know, it ends up going in, in the oceans and, and then hurting the sea life. And I'm like, then she went through this whole process of how to uh, take apart the straw and cut it up and you got to split it down the middle. And hopefully, you know, it won't go in the ocean. If it does go in the ocean, it, it, it uh, won't harm the sea life as much. Now, you know, knowing more about that, you know, the, the, the microplastics still do, it still are bad, <laughs> but that was kind of my wake up call and that we need to start doing more. And uh, I truly believe that this can be accomplished through our line of work, through design. Yeah, I'd like to really discuss solutions like that. We'll get to that. Um, I find myself pretty frustrated about this topic and have for a long time because so many of our clients, and I've been designing products for, I mean, well over three decades. And I can tell you, I would say close to 95% of our clients say, help us sell more product. That's your primary objective designer. Strategize a plan for business success. And our definition of prosperity is high volume of whatever you're designing. And the measure of your success, designer or consultant, is achieving higher revenue through by creating higher demand and therefore higher volume of things that are often manufactured using plastics, some of which I'm going to guess, unbeknownst to me at the time, were harmful to the environment, harmful to the end user. But oftentimes designers don't have knowledge at their fingertips. So we we or we're not connected to that that decision, that that final decision by the time your solution gets, your design solution gets to the factory, where where you even have any say in it at all as a designer. But we should. We should be the voice that says, hey, wait a minute, if we're going to look out for the outcome of the end user, 
above and beyond the income for our client, we have to make a, make a stand in a statement. And we have to provide, I think, information to even the engineers and marketing folks and CEOs of these companies that I, th- I think they owe it to the world that, you know, and especially if they're going to be a brand that they can be proud of, they need to take a higher responsibility without trying to get too depressing. I want to look like, John, sorry, if we could jump into some slides that you provided that really address like, what are some of these, like, what is the issue with these materials that us designers have been using and, and specifying for a long, long time? Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of our work at Parsons Healthy Materials Lab um, is fundamentally based on this statistic, which is we are the first generation to spend at least 90% of our time indoors, which is you know hugely significant because this is what we, we breathe the air indoors more than we breathe outside air, which is always like a call to get everybody to go outside. But also is, you know, that the air inside now is known by toxicologists and others to be three to five times more polluted than outdoor air. The thing is that um, a lot that the, you know, with our choices of building products and materials and furnishings, we're bringing a lot of invisible things into the spaces that we don't even know what they are. We don't even know what materials are made of. So you know, most designers don't even know to even ask what something is made of. It's just, this is all kind of new knowledge. And and so the issue is that the materials that are used, like you're saying, Dan, like the plastics that you use that even feel good or furniture that we make are becoming part of our biological systems. And that's been proven. And you said that at the very beginning, that now there's this new report that came out last week that 80% of human beings have plastics in their blood. And that that's that's not a natural thing. So and we don't we don't really know what it's doing to us. We right? don't. I mean, there's there's now more evidence, and that's that's kind of the crux of the work of of our work at, at Healthy Materials Lab. You know that we're starting to understand what the ingredients are. The issue is, you know, that you know these things are becoming part of our biological systems and kind of wreaking havoc on our systems. This is how it's happening. It's like. There are, there's off-gassing from materials that continues. Some plastics do continue to off-gas over time. Some stop um, after they've kind of emitted. But then there's this particulate dust. You know, some things, materials aren't static. They wear down and the dust gets into the air. And then some kind of, there are chemical additives to make, make things feel softer or make them stain repellent or fire resistant. And those additives are often not bound to, to whatever that material is. And so they release into the air and we breathe them in. And so this is how they get into our bodies that we can most, most of the time we breathe them in through the air, but we can also ingest them like particles, like kind of very nano, you know, microscopic particles of these chemicals can cling to dust and that dust gets clings to our food and we eat it or children who are most vulnerable, just crawl around the floor and then put their hands in their mouth. And get things through their mouth that way, or it can be observed, absorbed through your skin, dermal absorption. And this is the, this is the issue, which is that um, a lot of these, the ingredients in building materials are linked, are now kind of proven to be linked to these variety of diseases, human diseases. Like, I mean, cancer is a horrific one, but there are also things like asthma and neurodevelopmental disorders autism or ADHD or even reproductive disorders, which is 
Shauna, Dr. Shauna Swan wrote about this, that there's like a real decline in sperm count. There's a real decline in the ability to conceive children. Um, and this is linked to chemicals that are called endocrine disruptors, but they're found in a lot of plastics. This is just an example. Phthalates and bisphenols are additives to plastics. Phthalates make plastics soft and bisphenols make plastics hard. So phthalates are found in a lot of, like shower curtain is a great example. It's full of phthalates. That's one thing you could do. You could just get rid of the shower curtain if you have a, one of those clear plastic shower curtains. Just, you can get rid of that. And it's often in that, it's that soft vinyl. You can smell it even when you open up a vinyl shower curtain or anything quite like that. Uh, certain bags are made of it as well. I mean, it's it's so evident that it it's wrong. Yeah. I mean, just your senses are telling you this already. Exactly. And so these are some of the health ailments that are associated. And, you know, Dr. Swan is an epidemiologist. I mean, this is coming from scientific medicine, peer-reviewed papers. And there's a lot of reason to trust this evidence. Um, we look at a lot of the building materials that are used to make buildings um, and, you know, make interiors and make buildings. And we look to see um, what kinds of substances are contained in these materials. And then we can see that, you know, like the glues that are used in, in plywood, for instance, often contain formaldehyde, which are high VOC. So we, we look to reduce and avoid these harmful chemicals that are um, in building materials and find viable, affordable alternatives that are more benign. So as you were saying, Dan, like we are surrounded by plastics and Plastics are really petrochemically derived materials, but they are also the highest growth material on the planet. Like this is where there's all this new invention and production. And the real crux of the issue that we assume that all of these materials are, you know, somehow tested for safety, that anything's on the market that we buy must have been tested by somebody for safety, but that's not the truth. That in the United States, out of like, 85,000 or even 100,000 chemicals that are out there, only 250 have been tested and only five of those chemicals have been restricted by law. That is incredible. Unbelievable. And then like, there's like, yeah. you know, 60,000 chemicals that have been just grandfathered in because there's nobody to test them. So they just, you know, let's just grandfather. And as toxicologists are doing this research, we're finding that these are responsible for a lot of diseases that people are suffering. Is the innovation in these material fields, is it happening just so fast that the regulators can't keep track of it? Exactly. Because what I find on, on like this front end of when we're trying to innovate on a product, there's so many very specialized plastics that do certain things really, really well. So if you're designing a product that, you know, has to be uh you know, underwater its whole life or, you know, in the sun its whole life or uh, an extreme performance expectation or a certain functionality. Plastics are getting more and more vertical in the offering when it comes to performance. And to designers and engineers, that's a good thing, right? You can you can improve the performance or the outcome of the product the way it works if you're specifying a very specialized new kind of plastic. Like I remember when even like when certain nylons came out, even the way Herman Miller was using a lot of uh, rhinite and all these uh, polymers that were nylon based. But as those came out, the performance metrics were were offered to us, but not necessarily these deleterious effects that 
end up being a problem now. That's definitely true. It's definitely true. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a system failure in the United States. It's not true in every country. You know, the, in the EU, it's the reverse. Like you're not allowed to use a new material until it's been tested. And then, you know, there's different regulations there that help like prohibit something that's very harmful for our bodies to get out there on the market, no matter what its performance aspects are. But in the US, it's the reverse. I heard this story that, you know, the, the chemicals or the, the new inventions get into the queue, but if they don't, they can't keep up. And if they can't test it within six weeks or so, it just leaves the desk and is allowed to go out there into the world <laughs> instead oh, of the reverse. Like, wow. let's not let it go out there into the world unless we've reviewed it for human health, which is what happens in Europe. So regulations are not keeping up with us, and which is why it lies on the shoulders of designers and architects to find out what's in the product and should we really use it. Which to you, to your point, you know, when you you find a highly performative material, you want to use it <laughs> because you have a deadline and you need to you, you need to get that product designed and out there and in production. There's all these pressures, so it's it's difficult, no doubt. It's definitely difficult. The issue, the next issue, you know, this is the climate change issue, really, like. The current greenhouse gas emissions from plastics, from the life cycle of plastics, from like the raw, the raw origin of petroleum, all the way through the production, the refining of plastics and into the production is threatening our ability to meet the climate goals that actually like plastics is fossil fuel. Like we are actually emitting carbon every time we use plastics. And this report just came out. This is all kind of all this stuff about plastics is just coming out in huge amounts but in in October of 2021 just just now this report from beyond plastics suggests that plastics production will release more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere than coal plants which is what we've oh been gosh. fighting for all these years that coal you know plastics will become the new coal is what they're saying by 2030 which is only like 8 years away at what point during the production of I'm guessing what you're saying is when you're producing raw plastic, the actual material, when you're making the material. Exactly. That's when that's when the harm is done. Exactly. Exactly. And all the way through the process, because, you know, you have to refine the fossil fuel. It's a raw material. Uh, Rico, maybe you could help me on this. But, I, you know, it's a it's a it's a fossil. It's a raw material, non-renewable resource that then gets refined in these ref refineries or it's a, it goes through a cracker plant you know it's fracked and then goes through these cracker plants and it gets refined into molecules that we can use to make plastic so that whole process emits enormous amounts of carbon and then we go into kind of the mixing of the chemistry and the production which also takes energy and and fuel to run and that's more emissions and then we transport it and that's more emissions i mean it just continues and continues and then you know, you mentioned before that what happens at the end of its life is ridiculous. But this next statistic on the next slide is just also just kind of floors me, which is of all of the greenhouse gas emissions in the world, like of, you know, if you looked at the pie chart of where are they coming from? Where is this climate change happening? 31% of greenhouse gas emissions is related to making stuff, just the like the making of things. This is a carpet manufacturer, but it could be the making of anything. 31%. And it's like all this stuff that we make is just contributing. That's like a, almost a third 
of the greenhouse gas emissions because we're just producing new stuff. You know, I, I love and hate this at the same time. Industrial designers, especially and engineers listening here, it, it should be a like what we call a wake-up call. It doesn't mean that you have to stop making stuff, throw your arms up and say, well, I can't do this. It means you have to do a better job at it and, and help to reduce this percentage because people will need stuff. Do we need as much stuff as we currently think we do? No. No. Uh, but focus on quality instead of quantity. I mean, I think for me, that's a big message. It makes me kind of a little, well, angrier and angrier over my career, you know, about this, about this and other problems that we're causing by the production of so much stuff. But we, it is possible through good design, problem solving and design thinking, whatever your mantra is to, to start to address this. It yeah. is achievable. It is. I mean, it is. And we can start to think about renew using renewable resources, not non-renewable. So I think that's the newest. I think that's probably regenerative, actually. Regenerative materials are the best. You know, this is an example, actually, of what you could do with plastic. I mean, I love, you know, Parley for the Oceans is kind of amazing where they like really like taking that ocean plastic, harvesting it reconstructing it into usable pellets you know this is all recycled plastic and then refining it into and spinning it into plastic thread and then making new stuff out of old stuff and so this is a great example that thread gets used by adidas to make shoes and you know all these different companies are using you know i don't know i have tote bags made out of it i mean i think you can use it to make all kinds of textiles from like the trash and, you know, we couldn't have done this 100 years ago. We have new technology that's allowing us to, to process this stuff. I'm, I'm sure it takes energy to do. I'm sure, you know, there's greenhouse gas emissions from this process, but at least we're, you know, we're radically reducing, you know, to your point, we're radically reducing. And this is a great innovation uh, by Parley to say, let's like harvest that ocean plastic you know, remake it into a usable pellet and and spin it into a usable yarn. Yeah. And if the cost metrics are there, of course, everything has to make economic sense the way that our, our capitalist construct even works, right? right? So the so maybe as designers, we can even help with like this whole process of, of like thinking creatively about, okay, let's use our imagination about how to harvest waste material like that and then make it more cost effective. Yeah. Um, because everything will come down. I know that when we try to pitch certain um, either alternative materials or sustainability solutions that involve more of a process or a service to our clients, if it doesn't fall within their cost parameters, sometimes it's thrown out. And that's frustrating. Right. It's really frustrating because they'll always fall back to virgin plastic. I mean, that's the other thing. Like, you know, the people who are living near the factories, you know, that one of those grasses in, in that um, plastics is the new coal, which you can get at the Beyond Plastics website, shows like the, the amount of people that are being affected by plastics production, the amount of people who are contracting cancers of all kinds of crazy sorts just because they live next door to these plastic manufacturing. So like, yeah, so we're, we're sourcing virgin plastics and it's out of sight, out of mind. But all these people who can't afford to move from their houses that are living right next to these refineries and the factories 
are dying at age 45 because of our plastics consumption. Is that fair? You know, so I, I don't know how we get these, you know, larger companies to realize the impact of their decisions on other communities, but that's really important. And I don't know if, you know, our feeling is like designers could, could bring those issues up in conversations with clients. Certainly. Yeah, for sure. Was that, was that a resource you'd recommend the beyondplastics.org? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, I know that Rico, you spend a lot of time on this, looking at various processes um, and selection and material selection criteria. Uh, would you like to give us some insights there? Yeah, you know, um, it goes back to trying to incorporate a different line of thinking in your design uh, process, if you will. So how you look at the problem and you should think about sustainability from the beginning. And even at the, like the beginning phase of, of, uh, of, you know, empathy and asking the right questions and you can ask some of your clients and, you know, are they um, mindful or do they, you know, do they know what certain materials are, are, are doing and do they care about the product and where does its end of life is? But, you know, part of that is uh, building it into that process is looking for the way we utilize um, different materials, what's going, your sustainable inputs, um, your sustainable outputs, and what are the resting implications within that design? So if you look at sustainable inputs, is you know, like what Joan Cyrus has said, is all the different materials. What are the types of materials you can use? What are more sustainable materials? Now, uh, the Healthies Lab at Parsons is a great resource. I also like to use Materials Connection that tells us uh, in depth what, what is in those materials that you want to use and source. But do as a designer, we need to do the research on those materials. But beyond, you know, materials is you need to think about, you know, how it is being put together. I think this is a really good point because I, I, even in a, a standard design process, we actually will typically say, well, yeah, that's going to be wood or plastic or, or sheet metal or what have you. But there are so many different kinds of plastic and alternatives to plastics. It's I think you just, just spend more time on it. I'm, I was recently working on a chair and... The my go-to for this particular seat and seat back was plastic, and I forced myself to just really go back and rethink everything, and it led to a, a much better solution. It's not out yet, but uh, I think it this should be applied. This kind of thinking and a, a more broad input, as you call it, can go should go into everything that we touch. Yeah, considering the number of parts in within your, your your assembly, you know how much energy is being used for all that. If you, the the more parts, the more energy, right? In order to make it, so you know, so thinking about those aspects, trying to eliminate the number of parts, maybe simplifying design is is I think uh, another key element. And figuring out, you know, who does this does it uh, product really serve, and how can it be streamlined? I tend to ask a lot of questions and, and promote people to think deeply about, about what they're doing. Um, you know, for example, uh, we all go shopping, right? So has anyone ever used the, uh, the scan and go where you scan your product and then you pay for it because your phone, you, everyone has their phone. They have an app. 
they have their, their credit card tied to, you know, most people have their credit card tied to their, their phone. So as you scan, you pay and then you can leave. How many other things does that eliminate in that streamlined process? You know, what are the outputs? Does, does your product disassemble? Is it designed for disassembly? You know, uh, how long does it last? And, and does it have a, line, a life beyond its first? So um, going to the disassembly, I just got finished with my students doing a upholstered chair for sustainable furniture counseling for High Point, where we use a whole bunch of sustainable materials. And we, we designed this chair for disassembly. And what, what happens is all, you know, the, the arms, um, the legs, the back, the seat, all come off, come apart. But not only that, each material separates on its own down to this base material. So the cushions all together, the, the, the fabrics all together, the springs. So and the point is this all can be taken apart and then it can be, if needed, uh, reused. Um, you can also recycle it if, if wanted or reorder. So if your sofa breaks and say the springs are shot, okay, you can call the company, get some new springs, take it down, take, take apart your chair, throw in a new set of springs. And th- those materials. But the designer, it's responsible uh, to, for, I mean, to innovate on a much deeper level. Don't just make that, that chair or couch beautiful with the right colors and textiles. But go deeper than that is what you're saying. Correct. It's um, a little bit of our ethical responsibility as designers to do something along those lines. Because why? It's, it's better for the environment. What do you do in the case of, oh, I don't know. Let's take some, we, we do a lot of consumer electronic devices, right? They have, they have a life, a planned life. Okay. They have planned obsolescence. And... For many reasons, one is the technology keeps upgrading, getting better and better. You know, who hasn't been in a situation where you're? I bet a lot of you have stood in lines at the Apple Store when the new iPhone comes out. You know, um, do you really need one? Probably not. The other thing is, we work a lot with um, you know marketing executives who are basically saying, you know what, you guys did a great job on that product that you designed two years ago, but now we're going to obsolete it because we need a fresh new input. We need to, you know, there's, we've noticed a drop off in sales. We need another one. We need the next great thing. It's been frustrating because, you know, we'll often try to like almost every designer, I'm going to guess is listening right now. You try to do the very best job that you can. You want to create the ultimate, whatever it is you're designing. And then couple years go by that client if you do a really great job that client's going to come back and you're like okay outdo yourself do it again make it even better and so these things end up in the dump i can't tell you many things i've seen literally seen in dumps when i've renovated homes where i'm like oh my god i worked on that i'll see it in the dump i've seen computers that i've worked on you know back in the 90s in the dump and it's kind of scary it's it's talk about a wake-up call that's scary. I don't know. I, I you can hear it in my voice. I'm frustrated by this fact. I would look at what can be, you know, out of those components, what can be salvaged and can they all disassemble to be reused into the next generation? You know, it all depends on what it is. There's an awful lot of products out there where, where a lot of people say, Well, what, what are you gonna do with that old HP printer? Are you gonna ask people to take it apart? I wish the designers had done a better job in in making it possible to actually and maybe even fun to take apart 
and reuse. But if it was designed for disassembly and say they were completely obsolete, but if it was designed for disassembly down to its base components or materials, then you can at least recycle it. Yeah, but we but you have to have affordances in your design that allow people to do that. Because go try to take an HP printer apart. It's well, not easy. Yeah, it's, 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 <laughs> yeah I'm not picking but, on HP. But yeah. uh, you know, like oh, there's a lot of products in our world that um, are, you know, I've got one of these little blender bullet things and the motors was doing some funky sound this morning. I've oh, got to replace it. Yeah. Should I take it apart? It's got a lot of aluminum, stainless steel and plastic in it. And I looked at it. Well, I, I'll know how to take it apart because I'm a designer. And so, but you know, most people will be like, "Oh, this is intimidating. I can't do it." But but we can think different as designers to build that solution into your design. Remember, like carbon. What are they called? Carbon washers. Carbon for the motor. There was like the, uh, there's like a spring and a piece of carbon in it. Oh, brushes. yeah, the brushless motors. Yeah. Yeah, you could you replace the carbon. It like wears down, and then you. Get new, and then the motor lasts for a really long time. As long as the housing is cast aluminum, and you can you can take it apart and put it back together, and you still see them in the flea markets. They're still around. They're not in the garden. So the question would be, what what are the wearable parts? You know, what parts are really wearing down in those types of products that you can focus on designing for replacement? I, I yes, but I think the bigger challenge is shifting values, like to get people to understand, like. This is a good thing to do. And by the way, it might even be fun. You might even learn something when you do it. Like, like that kind of mentality, I think, as far as when it comes to like taking things apart and putting them back together, it doesn't really exist in our society today. We live in a disposable society. But we are, as we destroy our infrastructure and our planet, we will be forced to get back to, to repairable shoes and repairable electronics and repairable dot, dot, dot. So... Hopefully. Well, Well, I mean, hopefully, unless we just like, you know, like fill our planet with garbage and then we all live in landfills and have plastic in our blood and sperm counts go down and we kill our own species. Don't you think it's like that's how I'm feeling lately? Like, right. Oh, okay. But don't you think it's a growing trend that, that everyone's being more aware of the problems that we're discussing? Like, sustainability has become a little bit more of a a, a term that everyone knows or at least getting to know. Yeah. I think that's the key Rico is to build the awareness, awareness, rebuild the value so that we understand the impact that we're having. And then designers can better communicate not only through the product solution, but communicate the value and the packaging and the messaging and the branding, the storytelling, all the other things that designers do around the actual product, which is causing the problem. It's, it's describing and helping to promote more sustainable thinking on, on the part of the consumer. Because it's the consumer at the end of the day that makes that decision to make that purchase and to consume and discard the product after all. So... There's also these cool, you know, new design ideas coming. There's these Italian designers called Studio Forma Fantasma. I don't know if you've heard of them, but they're they're doing all of this. All their products are from electronic waste recycling. Oh, excellent. Yeah, to your point of like, what do we do with electronic waste? Then there's these new kind of mining, you know, like urban mining happening. Like, oh, I'll use that stuff and make things out of gold that like, 
out of those little electronic parts. And maybe there's new ways to think about what are the materials that we're using as the raw material? What are some of the more interesting raw materials <clears throat> and alternatives, especially to plastic, hmm. that that you guys have seen? Well, I don't know, Rico. You're you're doing a lot in wood, right? I, I, well, you know, I'm always a fan of wood. I, I think wood's pretty uh, uh, versatile. Um, you know, it could be structural, it could be decorative. It, it can do a lot of different things. Uh, certain, and the great thing about wood is that uh, you know that you grow more. You, just, you can grow more trees. You know, bamboo grows pretty rapid. Uh, there's other plant species that grow pretty rapid. You know, and I've seen even studies where they're doing um, using wood as as making it more translucent, so you can put it on products and see things through it, or Maybe one day it could be used in uh, structures from home to make, you know, different office buildings or office areas or parts of your home, more wood panelings that you can almost see through. So it has, wood has a lot of potential for different aspects. Um, It's not as formable as plastic, but, you know, it's very workable. How can you be assured that these are sustainable forests? Um, you know, every day you read something about the Amazon disappearing and research where your, your materials are being sourced and uh, and how they're being sourced and if they're meeting all of the appropriate standards. OK, well, what I mean, how do I tell my client that might produce uh, 10,000 plastic electronic products a week? And some of them do. I want you guys to use wood. You would have to make the pitch to the company how that is more beneficial, big picture, I think. And there, there could be a cost difference, and I'm sure there would be. Um, you know, plastics versus, you know, wood. I, I bet the, you know, that the cost would probably go up because plastic is pretty cheap. But you would have to make a big picture pitch that they would have to get behind because they want to do something better for the environment. And I think it's a, it's a good, you know, um, step in the right direction for them as business to do so. What I think also that's happening here is, um, and I, I do, I, I want to hear what you think, Dan, but like that, there's a lot of new uh, research going into making materials out of algae, for instance, or out of mycelium, which is the undergrowth of mushrooms or out of um, bacterial cellulose or using different kinds of bacteria to grow new things that are completely biodegradable and regenerative, you know, like parts of moss and seaweed and, you know, eelgrass and hemp plants and like all the different like plant genre that's being used and like really being tested in the laboratory to figure out how to create new stuff. We're, we're doing a deep dive into mycelium this semester and we have all these new uh, samples in the library. I just saw one today that looks like it's even more luxurious than leather mm. and it's mushrooms. Mm. It's fungi. Like, oh, wow. Cool. It's so cool. I mean, it's so exciting what's happening in the material science world of regenerative materials. <coughs> it's not quite there yet though. Like, so for your, the 10,000 plastic parts, Dan, like, like, could you ever have the conversation with them to say like, here's the impact that you're having on the world? Like, we, is that we something try. That, Yes, we try. Uh, some clients are are open and they want to do the right thing. 
they're like, just help us find it, help us source it and develop the processes that allow us to produce it fast enough. Uh, you know, in regard to these alternative materials, I, as a designer, I love finding a new material and then designing for that material. Sometimes the yeah, actual exactly. material and the processes to produce that material are often the first read of a design. It's That's where the innovation is. We've all been, you guys are in the furniture industry, you sit in chairs that are made of certain materials where just that's the joy of that experience. It just feels great. It's different. It looks beautiful as a result. These new materials allow you as a designer to differentiate not only uh, in in the sustainability factors, but also they can be beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, the things that, that we typically think about design when you want to create a beautiful form and, well, just a, just a piece of beauty to begin with, the material can actually give you more more options, a lot more options. Yeah. And a possibility to really make your design shine. Yeah. 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 I mean, like... One of the new statistics, again, that's out just 2022, a couple months ago, is that more than 50% of the ocean plastic, microplastics that are in the ocean come from paint. Paint. Really? Yeah. And it's like our house paint, but it's also industrial paints. Like paint makes up more than 50% of microplastics in the ocean. So one of the things that we've been looking at for a long time is like, what's an alternative? Because plastic paints, even just in our houses, aren't just a waste problem. It's a toxic toxic problem for all different mm. reasons, for all the additives they're putting in that paint, mm. not to mention the, the greenhouse gas emissions of paint. So we've been looking at minerals, for instance, and it, it goes right. You know, mineral-based paints are not only healthier, better for the environment, better for the air that we breathe indoors, but it's beautiful. I mean, the way that light reflects or like is absorbed on a lime-based or a a mineral-based, clay-based paint is like, it's so beautiful. It just makes the room different. It feels different. It looks different. It's more beautiful, I think. And so I think you're right. I think that some materials change everything. It seems like there should be more organizations that bring together material scientists and designers so that material scientists have an objective. Like, because designers know how to create that demand because they really understand the psychology of, well, perception and consumption, all the patterns around what creates demand. But material scientists are better at what, what can be done, especially on a micro level, like what you're just talking about, that paints a, a great example of that. There should maybe there are these organizations. Maybe maybe we should start one that bring these two fields more closely together. That's a great I idea. Think so, I mean, I think the but you're pointing out the big big issue is um, how do we get these large companies who rely on production, you know, on quantity, in order to make their company spin work? Yeah, like, and you know, do you what if you were to tell them that? the toxicity issues with their children or with their own families, would that get to them? You know, the fact that obesity is linked to plastics or that neurodevelopment, like, do we get to them through their personal lives (laughs) in the way that you talked about in the beginning? Yeah, some some of them maybe, but there's too much of a look the other way mentality with most corporations uh, because, you know, they're, 
beholden to the shareholders. They're looking for, you know, some kind of growth quarter to quarter. And it's just, and then here comes a designer with a crazy idea, a dream to, um, you know, make more sustainable products. But maybe we just have to become more forceful as designers. I think that's the next frontier actually is to address that because, you know, to address their, those boards, like their decisions are actually contributing to all of this and they're not, um, they're not exempt. They're not ex- excused from the issues because their own bodies are affected. And I think that's, you know, the toxic problem is a personal problem. Whereas the environmental problem is such a huge issue, but it doesn't feel personal to lots of people. You know, they're, my backyard is beautiful. You know, where I live is gorgeous. I don't, I don't need well, because it doesn't happen these effects right away. It's over time. So, you know, everyone experiences things in the now. So if it's not, yeah, well, that's, now, that's human nature, right? Oh, it's going to, you know, 20 years down the road, I'll be fine. Well, they don't understand the long-term effect or the big picture, but you know, our, us three voices here is, it's going to be hard pressed to make the change. We all have to band together. Like you said before, all the designers, we all need to kind of be on the same page. It's very true. And I think a lot of the evidence is coming forward uh, the same way that, you know, the tobacco industry, I remember when I was a kid, you know, smoking was relatively okay. It really wasn't too bad for you. You know, my parents smoked. And over the ensuing couple of decades, it became very obvious. Um, and, it, you know, I think with plastic, it's kind of the same, but it's now we're now being presented with evidence like you brought forth, John Sara, a few minutes ago. Um, we need to get that, that out in front of the corporations, our clients, the decision makers on materials. And I think a lot of designers need to be brave enough to say, you know what, and me included, I have to, I have to do a bigger, bigger part. You know, I admit that sometimes when a client will say, okay, well, it's got to be plastic. We kind of go along with it. Um, and I think we have to really try a lot harder. I, I, I think I'm speaking on behalf of a lot of industrial designers out there. I, I honestly. I loved your um, suggestion last time we talked about making a router out of bamboo. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Why not? <laughs> I love we, that. We, d- we did, um, uh, we did a, a product for, it was like a hub product for Google. And we, we were able to convince them to use bamboo for the shroud. And we found a supplier in China. Um, there's a huge bamboo forest in, in China near uh, Chengdu. And one of our designers went there to actually see it. And sure enough, it is sustainable. It's giant. And the, you can, my gosh, almost anything you want made out of bamboo, it's there. And they produced quite a few of these bamboo routers, but they eventually went away from it because the bean counters came in and they said, well, we can shave a couple bucks from this, this hub unit if we go back to plastic. And we tried fighting it and fighting it. And sometimes the bean counters win. I mean, this is, uh, it's unfortunate, but um, it does happen, but we have to keep trying. You know, you just, you never want to give up. Why don't we jump to some questions? Our audience has a few questions. And then we can have any kind of closing remarks. I have one question here. 
How can designers evaluate if a material is actually sustainable or if it is just marketing jargon that only presents it as sustainable by only one metric? I feel like there are a lot of materials disguised as sustainable, and I'm curious about the actual impact of things such as bioplastics, etc. You know, in our work, the first thing that you do is ask for transparency. Like, what's it made of? The first thing. What is it made of? And you, and that's how you can start to evaluate if it's sustainable or not. I know what are the components that make up this material of this product? How is it sourced? And once you, yeah. How do you source? Right. And where does it come from? Come from? Where, where is it coming from? And how is it made? What kinds of emissions are required to make this product? Where did it get made? Right. You know, is it local or is it, from the other side of the globe. And so it had to be transported across the world to get to you. You know, these are some kinds of questions. And then once you know some of these answers and you have answers to the substances that are in that product, then you can evaluate those substances to understand whether those are, you know, clean and safe or not so healthy. And there's a, there's a lot of, and, you know, third-party certifications are really important. Like, Cradle to cradle certification is really a good one. There are a lot of certifications that are not so good. So you really have to know which certifications are trusted and and not. And that's that's also really important. But third-party certifications are really, really important. And declarations are really important. Like just declaring, if the company's willing to declare what's in their product, then you know you're one step closer to something that's a bit better. And then where does it go at the end of its life? Does it biodegrade? Or does it stay on the planet for a millennium? <laughs> you know, so these are all questions. I, I agree, Rico, like just asking these questions, which are almost just commonsensical after a while. I mean, you have to make a habit of it. You have to start asking these questions. You know, it would be nice if when you buy a product, it had like a type of barcode, you can scan it and see what's in it, how sustainable it is. You know, we all focused on food. Everyone sits there and reads the label and you have this element in there that, you know, and, but what if you can do that with products? Yeah. I would love that. Yeah. We should all carry around barcode scanners. Exactly. It doesn't even have to be a barcode, you know, some sort of system that tells us whether or not that yeah. product I'm buying is, uh, is sustainable. What level of sustainability does yeah. it have? Yeah. That's the other thing, you know, consumers just, we just don't have that at our fingertips. They don't tell you. No. A lot of problem is, it, again, like the tobacco industry, they didn't tell us until they printed on the side of the cigarette pack that it's going to kill you. Yeah. No, it's true. I mean, for building products now, just in the last seven years, there's this huge surge in transparency efforts. There's something called the health product declaration. And that's just like, a it's kind of a nutrition label for, or ingredients label for building products. I want that for, for, you know, for products, for, you know, industrial design for like, you know, furniture, like, shouldn't you just be able to read the label? And it says, here's what we're made of. Not that hard, but then, you know, a lot of manufacturers, and I don't know if you come across this in your work, but you don't even know who all the sub suppliers are. You don't even know. No who all the suppliers are for the products you're making. So it's not you even don't. easy to make the list. Like the ingredients list isn't so simple to produce. 
because there's you know we always we always think you know forever you know since the dawn of design you know we think form function and usability and uh, serviceability but this level of understanding about what's actually going into that product to make it that should I love that as a metric that you can measure as a consumer mm-hmm. yeah. And then when you're designing, of course, there are best practices out there. A good material will often um, be tested and tried. And there is enough information on the internet where you can find those products that are genuine. It's hard to comb through so much information and data. And what do you trust anymore? But best practices will usually come to the surface after it has been tested. There are enough uh, places you can go to to find out whether or not something is truly genuine. Which brings me to this next question. Are there any reliable sources or lists out there about what companies and or material suppliers are genuinely practiced that are genuinely practicing sustainability? Is there a network or a case by case inquiry? If not, then what should I look for in my research? You know, that's what we do on our website is we we have something called tools and guides, and there's a ton of resources that are trusted. And we only put guides there that are trustworthy. So, um, and then there are other, you know, of course there's other resources out there that list these guides that to make things healthier. Can we, as a call to action to end this, maybe we could just put this on our our Instagram, shared Instagram. Let's, let's get Enrico, let's put something together so that this audience can like go to maybe put it on our website, uh, my team to my team. Um, and let's, let's make this more available to this audience and others that might want to see this recording. Yeah, no, I like that. Like a, a resource list. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that some already exist. I'm going to guess that the IDSA, uh, I would hope would have something like this, but let's go deeper with it. Yeah. Agreed. I think that's great. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. I think we are about out of time. What a treat it was to talk to both of you. It was a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a great conversation. Yeah. Thanks to everybody that's listened in. Uh, we'll see you next time. We like to do these events, um, oh, I don't know, about once a quarter or something like that. So look, we all look forward to the next one. But uh, most importantly, John Sara, thank you. Rico, thank you. Thank you. It's been a thank pleasure. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Thanks, Whipsaw. Thank you for listening to PRISM. Follow us on whipsaw.com or your favorite streaming platform. And we'll be back with more thought-provoking episodes soon. Prism is hosted by Dan Harden, Principal Designer and CEO of Whipsaw. Produced by Isabella Glenn and Sarah Lears. Mix and sound design by Eric Buell.